0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Darren Saul here, your host of Playing with Perspective, the Suspended Animation Podcast. I'm back again, episode 169. And we've got a fantastic show and a fantastic guest. Today we're going to be chatting all about how to help leaders navigate tricky workplace conversations with a fabulous Lisa Malloy. How are you, Lisa? I'm great. Great to be here, Darren. Thank you for joining me, and you know this is a fantastic topic. As we were just mentioning before we started recording, I you know I'm fascinated by this subject, and mm-hmm. uh, really me too. <laughs> I'm glad, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward <laughs> to getting into this with you. But before we do, I thought I'd let everybody know who Lisa is. So Lisa is a registered, masters-qualified workplace psychologist, facilitator, and consultant with over 17 years of experience in leadership development. She delivers a range of programs aimed at helping leaders and their teams become more skilled, self-aware, and human in the way they navigate important workplace conversations. So Lisa, welcome again. I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to this chat with you.
1: Yeah, thank you. That was a great introduction. I've got the gray hairs to prove the many years of experience (laughs) now.
0: (laughs) Yes, a bit like me. They were gray until I shaved them off. (laughs) but um, I'd love to get a little bit more insight into your background and how you actually got involved in this um, area of work and why you love it so much. Maybe tell us a story. Absolutely. Uh,
1: Well, I've always worked in consulting. And so one of the things I really like about that is that I get to work with lots of different types of organization, lots of different people, but it's always been around leadership and capability, if you like. Um, And so even as a sort of baby psychologist, I was always working in that space. And I think what probably led me to this point now is that I just kept hearing some of the same themes coming up over the years. So a lot of the work I would do would involve leadership assessments or stuff around talent and capability, and you'd be getting feedback on leaders from their team, that kind of thing, or their peers. And just often I would find myself writing up my reports or sharing feedback and just saying the same things over and over again which were often little skills around things like people needing to listen more, ask more questions, make it more safe for other people to share their views, you know, feeling like they have to know everything and they don't have to know everything, (laughs) just the same almost like interpersonal and emotional intelligence type stuff, just kind of the skills. That's what we call
0: soft Yeah.
1: The softer skills, the skills that are soft, but hard, because they're difficult <laughs> yeah, yeah, to master a lot yeah. of the times. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would say about that actually is that I think a lot of leaders aren't taught those skills. They just end up in a leadership position, usually because of something they know or they're good at, you know, technically or as an individual contributor, if you like, I'm sure you've come across this. Yep. And then suddenly they find themselves a little bit out of their depth. So, yeah, a lot of those same themes kept coming up. That was one sort of piece of the puzzle, I suppose. Um, And probably the other piece is because I'd done so much work at individual level and then at team level and sometimes organisation level, I would often be in there trying to help an organisation achieve some kind of outcome. And there'd be all this stuff going on that was just like getting in the way. And it was often politics or ineffective behaviours or performance issues or just things that weren't being addressed, you know, it, you've probably come across that as well. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I suppose I got quite passionate about how much that was impacting whatever those teams or individuals or groups were trying to achieve. And it was just constant, a constant theme. And most of the time it came back to People being afraid to have tough conversations or not sharing enough feedback or not having clarity around their role because that wasn't coming from the leaders they were working for, which all came back to having really good
0: conversations. (laughs) So true.
1: Yeah, such a theme, such a theme. So it was probably um, a couple of years ago, I think probably three or four years ago, I just found myself doing more work in that space just naturally because that's sort of what would emerge. And being a psych, I was getting brought in to help with some of those Strange sort of nuances and dynamics and ineffective behaviors, and when people weren't feeling safe and that sort of thing. And I guess one day I just sort of had the epiphany like, oh, this is the little space that I really like working in. And all of these skills that I end up talking to people about are the things that I was trained to do as a psychologist and as a coach and as a consultant, (laughs) in fact. So I just decided to hone in on it, really. And I love seeing the difference it makes. So that's
0: why I've just kept on in that space. Oh, absolutely. But I'm looking forward to hearing maybe a case <laughs> study or two later on to really paint a picture of how this stuff is, how this works and how important it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, i share whatever I can. <laughs> awesome. Let's start at the top because I always, you know, I always like to go wide and then drill down into some more detail. But, you know, why do we tend to shy away from workplace conversations, these tough conversations, you know, why is it, you know, in other parts of our life, sometimes we're more at ease to have conversations that are more difficult, but at work, for some reason, we shy away. Why is that?
1: Ah, That's a good point, actually. I think sometimes there's a trend where people are shy to have these conversations in all realms of life, but you're right. Sometimes there is a distinction and sometimes it can come back to what's often referred to as psychological safety. Like if you mm-hmm. think about being a parent, for example, and you've got your kids who will behave they're worst with you compared to with their teachers or with other people <laughs> because they feel safe, right? They know they can push the boundaries. They know they can say what they think, you know, they know they can raise their issues or whatever and feel safe. Whereas in work, that's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more evolving. You know, there's always that I have to be professional and I have to, you know, prove myself and I have to deliver things. And some of those, yeah, that safety kind of parameters aren't always there. So that's one of the reasons. Yep. Um When I often I do really quite like to talk about why people find this uncomfortable, because one of the things I really love doing when I'm working with people on this subject is sort of what we call normalizing it as a psychologist, like letting people know that it's perfectly normal (laughs) to avoid this sort of thing. And so I often will talk about the um, essentially the neuroscience basis of it, the brain based reason behind it. So I'm not sure if you know this, but we're really like wired to pick up on social signals in our environment. You know, we know now from a lot more research as well that we didn't always have before that people's brains, for example, light up in the same way when they experience social pain, like rejection or being excluded from a group, as they do when they experience physical pain. So that in itself is really fascinating, right? So your brain responds in the same way. And we only know that because we can watch people's brains light up now when they're doing different things. And even simple. some of the studies around that, even as simple as people playing a game online like a physical uh, like a virtual game with a ball and they get left out of the team <laughs> when people have to pick teams yep. that kind of thing it's really really interesting so we're kind of wired to you know want to belong to yeah. have that sense of being in the in group with people and yep. the reason for that as you probably could work out is because that's what helped us to survive as humans you know in the cave dwelling days, we needed to be part of a tribe to survive. And if we didn't, then we would get kicked out and we'd get eaten by the tiger or (laughs) whatever it was, or we wouldn't have enough food to survive. And we're still wired that way. So even though the environment's changed, we haven't changed. So we're just just wired to pick up on those signals just always. So, you know, you can sort of see how that then connects to relationships and how we want to make people like us and we want to belong and we want to feel valued and all those other things as well. And when you think about it, conflict is kind of bad for relationships, and you know, conflict is something we therefore often avoid. So that's one reason.
0: Absolutely, and it's fascinating how the human mind runs. You know what drives us, and as you say, it's it's programming from so long ago. Mm, I don't even know yeah. why. It's totally subconscious.
1: No, and that's exactly right too. It does happen at like a non-conscious level. So you sort of tuned into all those signals and you don't even realise it's happening a lot of the time, but some at some level, you're kind of always reading that. Yeah, it's yeah. been really interesting to talk about in the remote environment as well, because it's a lot harder to pick up on those signals. So those subtle little shifts that people make, and it's also a lot easier to misread those signals. That's so to nice. think, oh, you know, Darren just looked at me like that. He might be thinking this. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas think in the so. room- Maybe you, there's you know, just something body, in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All of those things can go a little bit more wrong in a remote world as well. Yeah. Um, the other reason I often sort of talk about, I suppose, is is the other part of the debate is sort of like the nature part that we just talked about. And, you know, the other thing I'd add to that is we're wired to focus on the negative things as well, which doesn't help. Our brain's trying to keep us safe, so we which focus on those, yeah. Yeah, those threats, those perceived threats. Um, but from the nurture perspective, if you like, if you think about it, so many of us are brought up being told, to be nice. Don't rock the boat, you know, yep. don't upset your sister. You made them cry. <laughs> like friends, play nice. Yeah. Yes. Stuff. Play nice. Yeah. And I love testing this one. if you, if you don't have anything nice to say,
0: yep. don't, finish say that.
1: <laughs> don't say anything at all. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So sometimes there's a cultural element as well, you know, yeah. just in how we're raised. And it's interesting when I work with organizations that have um, a breadth of cultures, like different, you know diverse perspectives and in some other cultures for example that aren't Australian cultures or US cultures even it's not the same you know That's you're actually it's, it's it's almost impolite not to challenge <laughs> in some cultures true, true. so that yeah. conflict is not seen as uncomfortable it's seen as productive and a sign of respect yeah. whereas you know for many of us it's seen as like rocking the boat essentially
0: absolutely and in some cultures I know it's even almost to the other extreme where it's impolite Or it's very polite to save face. They'll do whatever they have to do to save face. So even if you ask 10 times, they still won't uh, respond honestly because it's it's about saving face. So that's even all the other extreme as well. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, actually. And that goes back to some of what led me here as well, actually, one of my early experiences. So I did my undergrad psych and then I worked for a while Mm -hmm. while I figured out what type of psych I wanted to do essentially And so I worked in a couple of different corporate environments and it was fascinating because that's what really led me to become an org site to go down that path because I got to see all these dynamics at play and I worked in a Japanese company. So in Australia with a largely Australian workforce, but a very strong Japanese influence and some of the leaders were Japanese. And exactly that thing would happen. You know, they would say yes and mean no. <laughs> and
0: you couldn't raise
1: anything contentious. You just It was a really interesting experience, especially when there was such a stark contrast between sort of, you know, mostly Aussie blokes was the sales team because <laughs> it was a large sales team and manufacturing type of organization. And then the leadership that were, you know, from Japan essentially. Definitely. And yet yeah, you couldn't raise issues. So I had a few interesting, that's probably the other thing, I think I had a few interesting experiences around those environments in those workplaces, even before I became a psych and sort of went back and did my master's. But, you know, when I look back, I'm like, no wonder I'm fascinated with leadership, because, you know, I had some interesting examples of leadership (laughs) through that time.
0: I find so, it, yeah. I find that absolutely fascinating, particularly with regards to Japanese and Korean culture. It's very hierarchical, mm. and all those rules and regulations and etiquette around um, who speaks first. You know, mm-hmm. even you know, in a lot of those cultures, they do a lot of work at restaurants. You know, after work, who eats first, who drinks first. It's all about mm. the right way to do things, and it's all about saving face and hierarchy. So it's fascinating.
1: Mm. And interestingly back to that culture piece too so one of the organizations that I have worked with for some time somebody there was telling me a story about how things are done in Israel so they were from Israel and they were telling me this story about when they were a young child and they went into a bakery and they were trying to buy a roll of bread or whatever it is And they were being very polite and standing back and they weren't getting served and they stood there for an hour or so. This was like an eight-year-old at the time. And then suddenly they looked around and they realised what was going on. And I think they'd gone to live in Israel, but they weren't from Israel. That was the background. And they realised, I can't, this is not going to work for me. I need to be like all these other people. So they said they walked up to the front and were like, hey give me this now <laughs> <laughs> and just started being kind of really forthright and almost yeah. aggressive because that's what they realized in that moment it was a bit of an aha moment for them like yeah. oh this culture's different to how I was raised and so I need to be different and yeah. and that was you know told to me as a story around how you know some of the individuals in that organization who came from that background were seen as aggressive and confrontational when actually that was the norm Yep. you know yep. i'll share my perspective you share your perspective let's hash it out until we agree on something exactly. so, yep. you know totally different from what a lot of australians do really
0: that's true i've, I've done a like i've worked a little bit in israel years and years ago mm. in a kibbutz and you know in a cafe and it is it's just a different culture it's an amazing culture but it's a different way of life and you have to play by slightly different rules that's just yeah. the way it works and you know same goes for many cultures as well Around the world. And so do you have
1: experiences to share around that as well? Was it similar? Um, oh I, I mean,
0: I just, I'm pretty good with, um, with people and adapting. So I, I adapted pretty fast, but you know, mm. I obviously became a little bit more assertive and I wasn't as diplomatic mm-hmm. uh, because that's just not the way things are in a lot of cases. You know, again, yes. I, don't, I don't want a stereotype, but you know, it's just a different pace. It's a different rhythm and um, it's a different way of life. So you have to adapt to the way, the way things are over there. Mm. So I think it's fascinating, you know, and, but by the same token, the culture is electric because of that. Mm. Which is interesting. But I don't want to digress too much because I really want to get into No,
1: no, no, no. And actually I will, will just add one more thing to that. Of course, sure. then you get cultural differences within organisations too, don't you? Cultures Definitely. within organisations and then pockets of cultures in there as well. So 100%. it's really interesting. And that's probably what led to a lot of my fascination with This with is watching that play out. Yep, yep, yep. and the impact that that could have one
0: way or the other. <laughs> I suppose then it all boils down to awareness, observation, self-awareness. You know, mm-hmm. these are the basics of, you know, being able to move forward in, in, what you, in what you do. But in terms of the benefits of really mastering, or maybe not the word mastering is not easy, <laughs> not the right word to use, <laughs> we never master anything, but, you know, in getting better with workplace conversations or difficult conversations, what are some of the real benefits maybe obvious and not so obvious that Mm. you've noticed over the years when people can do this well
1: yeah I think it's it's really broad variety I would say I mean I'm obviously biased because I love working in this (laughs) space but one thing I often do do is I'll share statistics and things like that like you know studies and research and there's some fascinating stuff out there so to give you an example when you think about what often motivates people in organisations at the top to invest in this sort of stuff, often it's the bottom line, right? And so as an example, a HBR research sort of paper they looked at and they got all of these top CEOs and so on to talk about the cost of different people problems in an organisation. And some of the top ones were avoiding conflict and not dealing with bad performance, (laughs) And they estimated, just to give you a ballpark, that the cost of not dealing with conflict was around $6,800 per day when you oh, add it up wow. all the time. Oh. Yeah, per day. Oh, so you, ex- yeah, there you go, a big number for you. <laughs> so I love sharing numbers like that because it's just one bit of research. There's plenty more around all the interesting stats around who would quit their job rather than have a difficult conversation, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But I remember reading that and thinking, wow, when you add that up to the monthly cost and the annual cost, like oh. far out, That's that's a lot. And, you know, when you think about what goes into that cost, it's usually the time and the energy that's not being spent on the actual work yep. or dealing with the real issues or serving customers or solving problems or whatever it is, because so much is being caught up in dealing with the emotions, you know, the challenges, the conflict, the, you know, so there's like a, a conflict debt is a really interesting term that I like that comes from one of my favorite books around yep dealing with, you know, challenging conversations and having constructive conflict. And the author of that book, who's called Leanne Davies, talks about conflict debt and how it builds up. That's cool. Yeah, I know. It's good, isn't it? And it is a bit like debt. It builds up over time. It'll start as something small, but eventually it grows and it grows and it grows and it can impact people at the individual level, you know, whoever's involved, but then it tends to impact a team as well. Because if there's something that's not going on, then that impacts team performance. So, you know, I suppose I'm telling you the impacts, which then of course translate into the benefits as well. Uh, And it impacts results and outcomes. So there's benefits in terms of you know productivity performance retention engagement yep, people yep. leave bad cultures if you like people leave managers who don't deal with conflict mm-hmm. because they're the ones often suffering as a result and having to deal with all that interference every day um you know some interesting stats like 11 percent of people which if you think about you know you're in a team of 10 that's at least one of you would rather leave <laughs> than have a difficult conversation
0: Wow. whereas
1: you know so those sorts of things yeah you do recruitment as well, right? So, you know how much it often costs to replace somebody in a role. It does a lot so, of, there's a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah. And I often will talk about some of these commercial benefits because that's that really brings it home for people. Because it, you, yeah. you know, you can think about that there's an intangible cost as well, but it does end up impacting the bottom line essentially, replacing people, you know, dealing with dysfunction, all of your time and energy on that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, that's so that's I suppose also really, oh, that's a really good point. Energy, I mean, the energy. Yes. You know, the draining of energy when you mm-hmm. have to work to, you know, manage all this conflict debt is exhausting. Yes. <laughs> and then you absolutely. get done.
1: No, absolutely. And, um, and I think when you think about what the sort of definition of what makes a conversation feel difficult, it's usually there's varying opinions, like people have a different view on something, mm-hmm. something's at stake. For somebody whether that be one person or both people or the whole team or organization and emotions run high that's what makes it feel difficult if one of those things is missing it doesn't tend to be a difficult conversation and I like to always remind people of that as well because it's difficult because of that it wouldn't be a difficult conversation if those things weren't there so there is you know heightened emotions and they wear down people they impact resilience you know you think about the world we're in at the moment. Everybody's already more sensitized, and Definitely you know stressed. their arousal levels are higher, and they're stressed. And, and I'm seeing a little bit more of that coming out. I suppose in that people are getting triggered more quickly, sure. they're misreading into things, yep. and so yeah. So I guess you know back to the point around the benefits. When you when my view is that when you learn how to tackle issues while they're small. Then the big benefit is that they don't grow into that big yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, you yeah. nip them in the bud, and and as often when I talk, because I do a lot of training around feedback conversations as well. If you're giving ongoing, regular feedback, it doesn't turn into a difficult conversation yep. <laughs> because you've addressed it so quickly. So you know, right? Great. Many, many benefits. If nothing else, just when you think about being a manager who is constantly having to deal with all the conflict that's occurring around them, or the things that are happening that aren't resolved, or performance issue over here, yeah, time, energy just takes you away from doing your actual job yeah,
0: absolutely so wouldn't it wouldn't be nice mm. if we could all be super productive and everybody would just you know fall in and it would be like a well-oiled machine without any of these issues and this conflict debt building up.
1: yeah yeah and look there's always going to be some things isn't there because people are people and they bring all their complexities to the workplace <laughs> um and then you know if work's important to them then things do come into play always but i suppose that the thing around difficult conversations is that you if you can learn the skills to tackle them before they become too big, then it might still feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you'll move through it really quickly and get back to working well and all those positive benefits. So absolutely.
0: And even Mm. possibly learning the skills to avoid getting into difficult conversations in the first place.
1: Yes. Yes. And I do a lot of that in the workshops that I run and the training that I do. It's a lot of almost like preemptive skills as well. And you know, things like you mentioned before around building your own self-awareness and understanding your own triggers and challenging your own assumptions and your own stories, you know, there's so much in there, isn't there, because it still comes from that place of, well, I'm a human and I've got my whole view of yep. what's happening and so are you and you've got your whole view.
0: <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've all got really... our ego, our agenda, we've all got, you know, what drives us, what triggers us. So understanding yes. ourselves, if we can self-modulate in a way, you can avoid a lot of these issues
1: yeah that's right well learning to sort of tune in to yeah what's happening for you that might lead you to be triggered if you like that then can escalate into something more or when you see that in others which comes back to that point I made earlier around that whole idea of psychological safety I don't know if you've come across that much before but it's become yeah oh it's probably worth mentioning that it's become a little bit more I think popular in a way in the world of work because there's been some really interesting, cool research that came from Google, for example. Yeah. It's actually Amy Edmondson's research, but Google are the one who popularized it <laughs> because they stumbled across it and went, wow, this is the big secret of high-performing teams. They figured out, you know, this was the number one thing that made the difference wow. in their high-performing teams versus their not-as-high-performing teams. And so it really just refers to the idea that psychological safety, it's a dynamic thing that changes all the time. Mm-hmm. But when you are feeling psychologically safe, it essentially means psychologically safe, sorry, essentially means that you feel as though you can be yourself, just be yourself, like bring your whole self to work. Um, You can share your ideas. You can learn and make mistakes and try things out and fail and all those sorts of things. And almost at the top level, you can challenge the status quo, which is where, you know, you might be raising a red flag or bringing up something contentious. And you can do all of those things without it costing you anything. Without feeling that there's going to be some kind of retribution, or nice. it's going to be you know expensive in some way for you to do those things, yeah. so you know we can all relate to often working somewhere where that might have been there, and then it very quickly wasn't there anymore. And oh, then, you I know
0: can, I can think of many places I've worked in the past where I was scared to say anything. I just had to do yeah, that. that's it. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the way it is, I suppose. But fascinating stuff. I mean, and I'm glad you brought up feedback because feedback mm. is such an important thing as well and it's a real skill to give feedback properly but Mm -hmm. maybe if we take feedback into the larger context and i want to kind of give the audience maybe some tips and strategies on how they can start handling difficult conversations or feedback conversations Mm -hmm. you got any Mm -hmm. simple breakdown steps that can can help us yeah probably
1: a couple of um I actually do share a lot of frameworks and step-by-step approaches when I teach these sort of subjects because I find people respond well to a bit of structure <laughs> and, you know, a step-by-step here is what yeah, you can it's say. It's like a flowchart. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then it's very nuanced as well, isn't it, because conversations sort of evolve. But the one piece I would love to talk about and where I always get people to start, whether it's a challenging conversation or a feedback conversation, is with their intent, like stopping and reflecting and thinking, why am i bringing this up you know why is it important what do i really want in raising this what do i want for the issue what do i want for the relationship what do i want for the conversation
0: i I hate to jump in but i just i'm so passionate about that because you know i heard this years ago and i was every now and again i don't do this all the time but i'll try and ask myself what am i actually going to benefit and what is the other person going to benefit if i actually say this or bring this up if it's Mm. purely for my benefit Maybe it's not even worth bringing up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think just as important a question is also what don't I want? So what do I want and what don't I want? And and even just digging into that question enough gets people really thinking. Um, And then there's a whole range. And this is obviously just a self-reflection piece, if you like. But to me, it's the first step is just figuring out why am I doing this and what's it all about, really? And because often when you dig into that, First of all, you'll uncover the deeper issue because often we're talking about the surface issue and that's what you'd be raising in a feedback conversation or a challenging conversation. But actually, it's about the relationship. You know, you're you're sort of having the wrong conversation if you don't dig deep enough to figure out what is this really about. And so some of that reflecting can help you sort of figure that out. Um, so what you do want and what you don't want, but then also thinking about, well, what am I bringing into this? What are my stories? What are my assumptions? Yeah,
0: what's my what is the story into this? Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. And, and what is that? Why does that matter? If that is happening, what's triggered that off? What does that mean to me? So, you know, I love, I love sharing stuff around different triggers that people often respond to again, coming back to that we're, we're wired to pick up on a lot of social signals and there's some really common research backed things yeah. that matter to us, like autonomy Having a sense of um, status, but when I say status, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm better than you or I'm paid more than you. It can mean I'm an expert and I see myself as an expert. And so when you say something that suggests that I'm not an expert, then I get triggered. (laughs) Like there's a whole range of factors that have come out in the research that are really important to most people, you know, and they can trigger you. Or they can lead you to make people feel unsafe if you inadvertently trigger them in others as well. Right. So, yeah, digging back into what am I bringing to the conversation? What is my story? And then, yeah, what's going on for the other person? Just a whole lot of yeah. reflection is kind which of is, where I get people to start.
0: But Just empathy, really. Everybody's using this, throwing this term around a lot, but it's emotional intelligence and empathy in a way.
1: Yeah, in a sense, and just almost awareness, I would call it, too, yep. just self-awareness and emotional awareness. And, right. and so a really practical exercise that I would get people to do quite often is draw a line down a page and write on one side, what is this about? What do I want? You know, what, what's the, what is the issue that I want to talk about? Nice. And then what isn't it about? What don't I want? You know, and so on. And there's a skill that I often teach around that called contrasting, which comes from a book called Crucial Conversations which is a bit corny, by the way, if anybody (laughs) listens to it or reads it, but it's got some really good stuff in there. It's just a bit corny (laughs) at times. (laughs) Um, But it's about then articulating that, learning to make it safe for other people by actually expressing that. You can't do it until you've done the thinking. So, you know, to give you an actual example, if you're raising something about someone's presentation you might share some feedback and they think oh my goodness my performance is terrible my boss thinks it's awful or whatever when you can use that skill to say this is not about your overall performance i just want to speak about that one situation last week you know so you're kind of bringing it into perspective contextualizing yep. it reassuring people that it's not some big thing because that's yep. what our brains will do sometimes <laughs> it's how, so it's how that.
0: you set up the conversation how you frame yes
1: the conversation absolutely yeah you just dive in yes and i can tell you now that that step in itself which is just the first step in the frameworks that i teach most of them is a game changer for most people like i've had a coaching client i finished with recently and she said literally lisa this changed my life <laughs> because she's used that skill in every workplace conversation oh. every meeting she yeah. works in quite a high stakes role you know every single in like interaction she goes into she just takes five minutes to think what what do i want to share what is the key message i want to give what is this yeah. not about like And just that little bit of prep, she says it just changed everything for her.
0: So because I suppose if you don't, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. If you don't um, allow the other person to really understand where you're coming from and what Mm -hmm. the issue is, they'll take it off in their own tangent and, you know, blow it up into something totally different than what it actually is.
1: Yeah, that's it. And and I think in the absence of certainty, back to our brain perspective, then we feel our head fills with the story. So they, right. you know, your brain tries to predict what's going to happen next and keep you safe. That's, and the conserve energy. They're the three kind of main functions of our brain, which can translate into coming up with a story that's not true <laughs> making assumptions and biases, because that's your brain, taking a shortcut to save you some energy. Oh, yeah. this is what happened before. Every person who I know who was like that had this characteristic, oh, that's probably what's going on here. Okay. And and keeping you safe, like I'm feeling threatened, so I'm going to have a response now. And then, you know, your emotions and takes over and you can't think rationally anymore. And yep. so, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, wow. so that, that's one of my big tips is just getting really clear around that, which does take time and reflection but it does mean that at least you go into a conversation really clear on what it's about, what it's not about, what you are trying to get from it. So
0: framing it properly, uh, being aware of the, of what you're trying to achieve. What's the intent? mm -hmm.
1: Um, Any other
0: one or two steps?
1: um probably the other key tip i would often give away well obviously there's going to be things like listening <laughs> asking questions <laughs> I love that one. being genuinely open and curious which is all easier said than done so yeah. i'll often get people to practice some of those things out as well i've been running some workshops this week and i joke around and talk about my listening ears and put these big pretend ears on my head to remind people and it's sticky it makes them think and then they Often, interestingly enough, I'm running sessions on something completely different, which is career and development conversations. But people's takeaways often, I need to listen more because it's such an overlooked skill that's not, you know. Um, so, obviously, all of those things. But I think probably if I was going to give one more really practical tip, it would be when you're talking about other people's behaviour and actions, whether that's a feedback conversation, you know where this is going, I imagine, <laughs> or yeah. a challenging conversation. Yeah. Sticking to the facts, like sticking to what you observed, what you saw, what you heard, not bringing your story into it. And I often tell people just imagine that I was there. What would I have seen and heard or imagine that you recorded it? and I often do it like this, like old school camera, but these days it's like mobile phone. (laughs) But imagine you recorded it, what would you actually see? Because if you can stick to those observable behaviours and talk about them really objectively, it stops you getting into that tussle where often you're applying a label or a generalisation or an assumption and you might say something like, well, you were really aggressive. And they'll say, well no, I wasn't. (laughs) Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. Well, I didn't think I was aggressive. Well, I did. And you just can't go anywhere with that. So sticking to, you know, the observable stuff, and then instead linking that to what the impact of that was, and again, here are some observations, or this is how I felt. And it's not about you causing my feelings, but it's just I'm sharing, this is how I felt in that moment, or how that person felt. Or, so, you know, you kind of sticking to the facts with other people, but you can be a little bit more subjective, not subjective, but share your experience more when it's about you, yes. because often that's also what adds the weight to the conversation that's by right. saying, this is the impact it had. And then often people will be like, I had no idea. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. I didn't intend that. And yeah. it almost clears up the issue really quickly. Yeah,
0: which, which is almost like um, the initial step of how you frame things. If you frame them in that way, whereby mm-hmm. you're saying, this is how I felt, you're already saying relax. This is just me. This is just my feelings. It's not fact. I'm just, we're just having a conversation. So it's almost how you're setting up the whole conversation in the first place. Mm,
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, even when you go back to that framing piece too, then I do do a lot of work with this on people that you can say, Something like, hey, I'm going to share my observations and my perspective, but then I'd really love to hear yours. Is that okay? You know, and, and then following through on that, of course, <laughs> actually listening when the time comes to get the other person to share their perspective and asking all those really great questions. And, yeah. you know, all they all sound simple in principle. This is what I find. But it's easier said than done. So, again, and I, it comes back to what I get very passionate about is just leaders aren't taught these things. And, in fact, not many professionals are taught these things. Right. I was taught these things because I was a lifeline counsellor and a psych and I went through all of that training. And, you know, my lifeline skills, for example, have seen me through all of my career. They've served me so well right from the very start when I did that back in undergrad. But nobody's normally explicitly taught how to paraphrase and how to reflect and how to actually show empathy, what that really is rather than what it isn't, (laughs) which people often get wrong as well. And learning that you don't have to fix things, you know, if somebody is experiencing emotion, you can learn to sit with that discomfort and just be there for them. You don't have to jump in and save things or come up with your advice or all that little micro skills. (laughs) Yes, I find them fascinating. I kind of geek out on all the small nuances that can make a big difference, you know?
0: I've always been fascinated by human interaction and psychology. And, you know, to me, this stuff is just, you know, an immense area of study and you know you mm. observation and it never ends you can learn constantly and it just fascinates me yeah and what's
1: to me too obviously or i would still be a psychologist but one what's really interesting is that everybody is different you know obviously everyone's got their own individual drivers and motives and all those sorts of things and responses and personality styles but then there's also really clear trends where most humans respond in a certain way to certain things. So when you can learn those trends, that's like the first step in understanding, Oh, that could set off this person or that could trigger a response that I'm not aiming for. And you can learn to proactively address that or address it in the moment. Um, But then of course you still have to inquire and learn to adapt to different individuals as well. So, you know, some of my clients will have really robust conversations with one their manager or one person in their team, and they can say anything, anytime, and the trust is 100% there. <laughs> and then there'll be other people where they're tippy-toeing around. So often a lot of the work I'm doing in coaching context is helping them nuance their approach to all of those different stakeholders and all of those different individuals. But again, coming back to trying to figure them out or asking questions to challenge their own assumptions or you know their own idea that they know all the answers or <laughs> whatever it is. Humility—that's probably another big piece of a lot of what comes into all of this—is
0: humility, really. Definitely, oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the <laughs> biggest traits, the most important traits, and the biggest skills of human beings in human interaction. Mm. I think, I agree. Um, <laughs> now, in terms—if we take it to the other side—what about in terms of showing appreciation and recognition mm. to people? I mean, any? What are your thoughts on how we can do that better? Or Um, Is it the same type of theory?
1: I think there's, well, and again, I work in that space a little bit as well. It's the other side of feedback in a way, isn't it? Because often when people think about feedback, they only think about the constructive feedback. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's some similar principles that can apply. My view in general is that it isn't done all that well.
0: All all that often.
1: Yes, or all that often. And my personal view, I suppose, on my experience across all of those years now is that there's a lot of organisations wasting a lot of money <laughs> on recognition programs and systems and things that almost take the human out of it when, in fact, they can just teach the humans to be good at it in a pretty simple way. <laughs> so, you know, people often focus on tangible things like money and vouchers and that's not what people want. And, again, coming back to the research, people want to feel valued and appreciated and they want to feel like they can be themselves and
0: the they recognised.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So, yeah, look, I think there's a lot of room to do it a little bit differently. Um, One of the key ideas I often like to talk about too is the difference between recognition and appreciation. It's a bit of a nuance and you might find different definitions out there, but there's... um, probably a bit of agreement, I suppose now, that recognition is often about the work that people do or sometimes the behaviours that they demonstrate. Mm-hmm. But if you think about that, it's almost a bit conditional, like you have to deliver this result or do this thing True. or demonstrate this behaviour. And so that can mean that's sort of limited, you know, there's not yeah. there's not an unending supply of it because people have to do those things to get that recognition.
0: It's almost like Whereas, a reward. Do something, get a reward. Do something, Yeah, get that's get right.
1: And it's still important. It's still important, of course, yep. and people respond to different things and want different types of feedback. Um, whereas appreciation is almost a bit deeper. It's around appreciating the qualities that someone brings, which yes. taps into all the strengths-based stuff that's floating around and that kind of, you know, Hey Darren, I appreciate you for who you are, not yeah. what you did because yeah. that is conditional, but oh, what you're trying you to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So my view is that a bit of both is important. You do need to, share both. But you can really, or leaders that I've worked with, can really supercharge their success by tapping into that appreciation bit. And if you think about it, there's a never-ending supply of that (laughs) because it's really about looking for what it is that you value about people that they bring to the team, you know, the qualities that they bring, the characteristics that they bring. That might translate into the work and, you know, what you can count on them to get done, for example, in a day-to-day environment. But really then you're saying, hey, I appreciate you for you. And that just... It just packs a massive punch in a good way. It's, yeah, so, it's so powerful. Good. Yeah, it makes people feel seen and appreciated. And, and so, but, you know, in doing all of that, you can still go back to some of the same principles around feedback in talking about specific things that people did or said or qualities and then linking that to the outcomes or the impact that they've had, you know, can still be really specific around it, make it meaningful and relevant by actually telling people why it matters. Yeah and what value that brought, rather than just saying, hey, great job, <laughs> which is what often happens. Absolutely. Just, and hey, great job.
0: And one of the but- best books that I've ever read um, has been a, a famous book that everybody knows of. It's by Dale Carnegie, How to mm-hmm. Win Friends and Influence People. And I think mm-hmm. he has a whole principle in that book about showing genuine appreciation. And he, yeah. All these anecdotes and stories. And if you read that chapter, it just blows you away.
1: A lot of Dale Carnegie stuff is still so relevant, isn't it? It's like just still 100%. so relevant. Like, so relevant. It, it, It's because like it was, he tapped into all the stuff that positive psych research has now brought right. out as true, like we know now. <laughs> from are the research. same
0: human beings we ever were.
1: Nothing's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and again, back to the stats one that I really like to share, there's a great company in the US called Work Human. Mm-hmm. There's a great book too that, that, that they've written. But um, I was fascinated and a bit blown away last year when they was listening to a podcast and they were talking about how they now have 50 million data points because they go into organisations and and run surveys and track people's, you know, the sentiment, and the cultural, you know, engagement surveys and so on. And of their 50 million data points, the number one thing that people said that they wanted more than anything else from their manager was appreciation.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: in the book, it's it's something like thirty thousand data points, but by the time I listened to this podcast, which was an interview with Brené, Brené Brown, and they said fifty million, I almost fell off my chair <laughs> thinking, I'm "Wow, quick, so I long need long. to write that one down. I'll be sharing that one." So, it wasn't that fascinating too? It just yeah. it just goes to show it's just
0: just a fundamental human need, really. Yeah absolutely and we just don't do it enough i think we just don't do
1: no 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 and that's the thing all of this taps into this is the the psychologist geek coming out but it all taps into what we know from positive psychology which is that field that focuses on what helps people to flourish and do well and live their best life as compared to what's sort of wrong with people we now have again lots of clear research around things like meaning and purpose and having a sense of autonomy and being able to play to their strengths and you know you can see how that appreciation and recognition piece just taps right into all of that as well as the psychological safety stuff because it's me saying hey you're okay and i accept you for who you are and you're great which then leads people to feel more confident just being themselves
0: yeah true and there's another fantastic concept that i read years ago um stephen covey's book uh, seven the seven um
1: habits of highly effective people
0: people. (laughs) i think one of the concepts in that is the emotional bank account yes and and what he talks about is that you know when two people have a relationship it's almost like a bank account where people are making withdrawals and putting and making deposits Mm -hmm. and if you've made lots of deposits you know because of doing things the right way every now and again you might take a withdrawal it won't affect Mm -hmm. the relationship as much but if you're doing the opposite that relationship will disintegrate very, very quickly. So yeah. I've, I've always remembered that. I think it's a fascinating concept.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And um, Brené Brown talks about that in one of her talks where she talks about the marble jar. Have you watched oh, that I I very famous that. TED talk? Yeah, I really like it too because it comes to trust. Like she often talks about it in the, the way of talking about trust. It's, and I use this with my kids when I'm talking about trust because that's the story she shares as well. But the idea that trust is built a bit like the bank account by putting one marble in a jar at a time, you know, just one little, every little thing that you do is putting a marble in the jar. And it takes a while to fill the jar, but it's very easy to have that jar just smashed to smithereens. (laughs) You know, sometimes people do something that's so big that it's like picking up the jar and throwing it on the ground and it's gone and you have to start again. A Mm -hmm. bit like the relationship bank account and just build up. (laughs) I mean, this is partly what I I love. Like I see this feeding into a lot of this work I do around feedback and difficult conversations because at the end of the day, when you're not telling people what they need to know to do their best work or to succeed, Or, you know, what might be impacting their brand or their performance or their reputation or, you know, what people think of them, essentially, you're actually not being kind, like you're not being helpful to that person at the end of the day, you know, you're you're avoiding it because you think it's a tough message, or it's a bit tricky, and they might get upset. And I don't want them to feel like that. But, you know, I cannot tell you, um, I can't even count on my two hands and my feet, how many examples I've heard (laughs) where somebody has not been given that feedback or that difficult conversation hasn't been had and it's ended up costing them more down the track. Right. And their response is always like the jar has been picked up and thrown right. on the ground because they just cannot believe that usually their leader didn't tell them that. Why yeah. didn't? That's what I always hear. Why didn't you tell me that earlier? Why has nobody ever brought this up with me? How am I supposed to change it when I just didn't even know? Yeah. So, you know... I see, to me, I see the trust piece being really important in there around this challenging conversation stuff. And I suppose also having trust in your leader, for example, that they will tackle the other issues that might be impacting you, that they will, you know, be prepared because it is the role of a leader, I suppose, to address the ineffective behaviours or the the challenges or the, often it's ineffective behaviours, right, or some kind of inappropriate behaviours or disrespectful behaviours that are then impacting the whole team. know that's kind of like the leader's role to tackle some of that stuff it will come up whether they like it or not it will come up (laughs) at some point
0: so that that creates that
1: trust as well
0: absolutely and i'm pretty sure that you know as as you mentioned a lot of the time when managers or leaders don't have those conversations with their um with their teams it's not always because they don't want to they just don't know how to do it
1: no and actually there's multiple reasons and again I love talking about this stuff because I do tend to tackle those barriers, if you like, or what gets in the way. I've learned over the years that I actually really love working with groups when I'm running sessions and so on, because when you start talking about those things that get in the way, people realize, oh, it's not just me who feels like that. Yeah. And so it normalizes it again for them. And then they start to learn the tools to sort of tackle that or realize why it's important. Exactly. Um, but often it's just fear. It's fear of what, you know, if I bring this up, they won't like me. Or what if it makes the relationship awkward or, a whole lot of fear and it's the same as um even giving recognition there's still barriers that get in the way there what if it comes across as unfair it looks like i'm playing favorites what if i can't think of anything to recognize with one person and sometimes there's these other underlying inbuilt sort of thoughts around well nobody ever recognized me i just got told to get on with it so why should i recognize (laughs) them shouldn't they just be doing their job (laughs) Like I hear all the same things over and over again. And again, it just shows that there's that kind of common human experience, I
0: suppose, of these common different situations. In human behavior.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and I think again, it's just raising awareness and tapping into that and helping, I don't know, if it is because you've got a bit of a gripe that nobody ever gave you positive feedback, then at least stopping for a moment and thinking, well, do I want to be that type of leader? Or do I want to be the one that everyone thinks of when When you say, hey, try and tell me about a time that you were really felt recognised and valued. Do I want them to think of me? (laughs) You know, which most people do, don't they? So they're not intentionally not doing these things. It's just Mm -hmm. learning to figure out what might be getting in the way. And the how-to, as you say, absolutely, like, one of the things I love again about my work is people often go out of the workshops and sessions and I give them tools and resources and lots of examples. And they say, I now feel like I know what to do. (laughs) I can actually go and try it out.
0: And And you hear them already starting to use those tools in the hallway. So, yeah, <laughs> well, and sometimes
1: they do in my sessions, it's quite yep. funny when you're doing a feedback piece or something around recognition and someone will always have a go at saying, so Lisa, and they'll <laughs> share like <laughs> a heartfelt thank you and they'll try to use the framework I've taught them yeah, or they'll yeah, give a nice. bit of feedback or something like that. People often jokingly try it out. <laughs> and I do get them to try it out. I always get people to try things out in the actual workshops or sessions because then they know how it feels because yep. otherwise they walk out thinking, oh, this is easy. It's a bit like sticking with being objective about people's behavior and actions, it sounds easy, but when you actually try and do it, it's really difficult. <laughs> active process Whereas I was, yeah, really that's it, that's it, and that I mean, that's partly why I came to this work, too. You know, back to that question about what led me here, because a lot of what I've been trained to do really lends itself to that. One of mm-hmm. my roles as a, a psych in a workplace environment has been you know, those horrible like simulations and role plays and things yep. that people have to do mm-hmm. <laughs> as part of a recruitment process or as part of a Science leadership process. development program yeah. or yeah graduate program. I've been one of those psychs sitting there with the clipboard watching your behaviour and <laughs> writing things down. <laughs> and I'm also one of those psychs that's looked at all those assessments that you've had to do where it's all around your style and so on. And our job has is to be really objective, just to say, here's what the data suggests or here's the behaviour I observed yeah. And so that's, you know, that's a really strong part of my training, which means I'm quite trained in it, but I recognize that a lot of people aren't. Yeah. So, you know, often my clients will send me, you know, little things for me to look over and I'll share back a bit of feedback. What about this? Well, you haven't really described that behavior or whatever it is. And one of them said to me recently, she's like, I don't understand how you do this. You're just a superstar with stuff. I said, 17 years of, you know,
0: Absolutely.
1: experience. Like this is what I've, Yeah.
0: All so you've got other things and... that
1: you can do that I don't know how to do. In
0: Absolutely, so. you know, train yourself to think and behave, and you know work mm. through things in that way for seventeen years. It's all this motor muscle memory.
1: Yes, that's right. And same as things like listening, that's something that you yep. learn to do and you practice doing. You know, when you're doing counselling or coaching, or you learn it and you build up that skill over time. Yep. So I guess it's you know always reminding people that you can learn those things too. There is scope to build those skills just like any other skill really it's just oh, practice 100%. and reflection yep.
0: mm. we can learn anything if we put it if we set our mind to it yeah absolutely awesome. and so lisa tell us a bit more how you work do you work just with um, corporates in or do you work with individuals as well tell us a bit more about how you actually work
1: yeah um, so i do mo- work mostly with corporates in the sense that all my clients whether they're individuals or groups are from within organisations. Mm-hmm. Uh, So the organisations engage me directly most of the time. (laughs) Occasionally it'll be an individual, but usually the company's paying for it anyway. (laughs) Um, But I do work at, yeah, different levels. So with individuals in a coaching capacity, uh, one-on-one, and tend to now focus more on these same little buckets of interpersonal stuff and communication skills and trust and safety and all those sorts of things. And then most often what happens is an organization engages me to run programs within their business. So whether that be for, I've just, I'm just about to wrap up a whole organization-wide program where we ran sessions for leaders and sessions for people in their team, which, by the way, if you ever want to run training or run feedback or having career conversations or any of those things where, you know, the, the expectation is that the leaders are good at that. It's an absolute way to supercharge your effectiveness to teach employees how to receive feedback or (laughs) how they can come to the conversation as well. So I love getting to do work like that. So, yeah, often it will be with organisations getting me to do whole big sort of programs or run it out to certain cohorts so there'll be multiple, you know, multiple groups going through. Um, And sometimes sort of mixed groups, you know, with people from different organisations, if I'm doing a small group piece or it's a bit mixed. But, yeah, always with organisations, but a real range of organisations.
0: I can imagine
1: so big, yeah. big corporates. A lot of tech. I work in a lot of tech companies oh, wow. these okay. days. Yeah. yeah, it's. I really like tech companies. They're full of really interesting people, and, yeah. um, you know, things like finance and engineering. If you think about it, a lot of makes a lot of sense because a lot of the individuals I've always worked with have been people who've come from technical or specialist roles into yeah. leadership positions. Yep, because again, sense. going back to not necessarily being taught these things, you know, expected to pick up all these people leadership skills with little or no training a lot of the time. And, you know, often coming to that with a history of being kind of rewarded for what they know, like their knowledge, their own technical experience, and then suddenly have to, have to make that shift into delivering through other people rather than through very themselves.
0: So Very different. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, so, I, you know, I just work with a whole range of clients, but most often it's where people... Are the asset, if you like, you know, it's yeah. it's people, you know, thought-based roles and gotcha. expertise-based roles, and
0: but a good smattering. I can smattering. imagine nowadays it's all Zoom and Teams and video. Yeah, conferences. mostly.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's been really interesting. I don't. I think I've run about two sessions in person <laughs> since <laughs> oh. COVID started. Wow. Which is, but it's interesting because I work with a lot of tech companies. It's quite diverse, but quite a few tech companies. Yeah. It it actually was very normal for some of them to be. True. you know operating in a hybrid or a remote environment anyway yes. so it's been interesting that a lot of organizations that were already hybrid and therefore haven't had to really adapt to working in that sort of environment yep. are enjoying the remote fully remote experience because yes. people who would often be remote in the sessions that were running were now like everybody's on the same playing field we're yep. all in the same zoom room yep. <laughs> so yeah a bit of a mix I'm looking forward to going back to in person that's for sure but there's, there's perks of both approaches but it does take little bit more effort when you think about what I'm often working with, which is how to have tricky conversations or feedback. You know, the dynamic in
0: Zoom is not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, it does but, but then that's be, so that's how people in the room, it makes a difference to you know yeah, you to feel your then, energy.
1: That's right. That's right. But this is the environment that people are in. So at the yep. same time, sure. you know, you're learning those skills in the environment in which you have to demonstrate them now as well. Oh, so we will talk about things like, you know, learning to use your words more to talk about your intentions or be yep. clear around things because people won't pick up other the nonverbals as well, or they might misinterpret them or,
0: that's right. you know,
1: really making time for conversations because you're not going to run into people in the hall anymore. So, you know, how that's you right. have to carve out time for that and put aside other distractions because everybody's a bit more distracted now as well
0: and even something as simple even (laughs) something as simple as if you're going to be saying something really important is looking into the camera so the other person can see you and see your eyes you know because we forget about little things little nuances like that which are so powerful
1: Yeah, well, and interestingly, because the eye contact thing is really interesting, and now we're both noticing each other's eyes while we're talking about this. (laughs) But I think what what I'm noticing too is people start to learn where someone's eyes are to know that they're looking at them so I can see that you're looking at me even though you're not looking in your camera. And and I think we've just adapted to that, which is super interesting because then when you're talking about noticing people's nonverbals, for example, noticing if they're looking at you or they're looking away because often they're still thinking or something, then, yeah, you start to get really attuned to that. So it's almost like we've evolved to notice yeah. those things and pick new up way on doing so, New, new yeah. uh, signals in a way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay.
0: That's fascinating. And I'm,
1: The other thing I'd say is with Zoom, I'm finding there is a bit of a shift towards like shorter workshops and sessions, like multiple, which to me is amazing because, when you think about a lot of companies would do like a one day training on something and you kind of immerse into something and then you go off and that's the end of it whereas a lot of the organizations I'm working with have been quite open to shorter sessions and multiple sessions so a lot of the training I'll do I'll do in parts yes. so you're getting people thinking about something and then trying something out and then going and practicing things in between and then coming back and then learning a bit more and it's actually just more effective when you think about these skills, because you can put them into practice and then come back and say, hey, this is how it worked, or here's what I need to work on a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I'm enjoying it. I mean, I love the in-person stuff as well, but I enjoy the the fact that COVID has allowed us to do things differently. Definitely. And it's forced things us up. To, yeah.
0: uh, to evolve very fast. And I'm, I love it as well. I think it's fantastic. Mm. I think it's <laughs> fascinating. Awesome. Um, now, I would love to hear a little case study or a little story about, you know, some work that you've done with a person or with a team. And Ooh. through that process, the results were just incredible. And everybody involved was just so impressed. So I'd just love to paint a little picture. No pressure. Um, no
1: pressure.
0: It's extremely tr- confidential. It's tr-
1: yes, I do have to be mindful of that. It's um it's tricky to think of one specific kind of case study around some of this because it is often one on one work or so nuanced. Yeah. But I would what I would say is there's probably numerous examples of situations where i've say coached someone through or talk someone through how to have a challenging conversation even in as little as an hour just wow. here's a you know here's a framework and here's a structure and try this out and think about that yeah. and then they go off and do it and quite often realize oh it wasn't so bad after all <laughs> <Very great.
0: laughs>
1: numerous numerous stories of that um but i think when you asked that probably a case study that comes to mind was working with a group where it was it was kind of like the story of difficult conversations not being had, if you like, yeah. and working with a particular group, so quite a large sort of group of people, and I won't go right into all the detail, but I was asked to kind of make it safe for them to share a little bit about what was going on. And what emerged was that essentially there were just a couple of people in the team who were not behaving ideally, right. <laughs> some ineffective behaviours that sort of should have been stamped out but hadn't been addressed. And so there was a good amount of people in that team as well who had raised it, tried to bring it up, tried to address it, You know, done what was in their control essentially and been shut down, being right. told, no, it's just you, toughen up, don't worry about it, that kind of thing. Yep. And by the time I got brought in and asked to be, hey, can you put this psychologist hat on? Can you make it really safe for people? And can you really dig into what's going on? <laughs> did some stuff come up because they were ready to talk and they were at a point where, you know, people were saying things like it feels as though we walk into every meeting now and combative, ready to fight, like our heart is thumping, you know, we're riled up. Like that's just, that was almost like I I tell the story, I suppose, because of the impact that it had had on the culture over time. So people who, you know, were meant to find safety in working with each other and were in quite tough roles as it, you know, to start with, were starting to just sort of feel like that. And it really just came back to tough conversations not being had, essentially. Yeah. And so I suppose the success part of the story is that, you know, I did my piece and shared back what I could around, you know, what was going on, um, wasn't really met with a highly engaged reception. Um, some of the people involved were, had other interests and were not sticking around and yeah. that kind of thing. And then the good part of the story, I suppose, was that down the track a different leader came in, reached out and said hey Lisa can you come and talk to me about what's going on here because I believe you've done a little bit of work in this space and essentially just went no not dealing with this anymore not putting up with it drew a line in the sand addressed everything that was going on just you know got me to help a little bit but mostly took hold of it and I love I I mean I'm trying to keep it very confidential but (laughs) I share the story too because to me it was just an example of a leader who just went I am just going to take hold of this and just not take it. And, you know, owned it, completely owned it, even though it wasn't theirs to own. And even with me supporting them, didn't try to pass the buck to me to try to deal with the tricky stuff. Just went, no, no, this is mine. If you could support me a little bit in this, that would be great, but I'll take it from there.
0: Fantastic. And
1: just just went, no, no more. And, you know, was went so far as we, we talked about what was acceptable behaviour and what wasn't acceptable behaviour, just to put a really clear line in the sand. And then just didn't tolerate it, started taking action right away. And even, you know, and I don't always get to see the long-term impacts because I'm not always engaged right down the track, which is a shame when you're a consultant. Sometimes you're in for certain bits and not other pieces. But even a couple of little things that started to shift straight away, you know, when I did go back in, there were people who had previously shared things with me who came up quietly and said, it's starting to change. It's starting to change. And you could see the hope and the optimism in there. And so, you know, I I always always think of that because it was, I think, a very um, good example of how much difference one
0: leader could make. Just to release the tension, all that tension that's been built up yeah, well and, and just and it's amazing what transformation can happen. And just
1: decide not to deal with it just not I'm not going to tolerate that. Just said no, that's it. And it was brave enough and courageous enough despite a few things working against them to just say no. I'm going to just lean into this and tackle it. So, you know, which is a pretty yeah, pretty courageous thing to do. So, that was, you know, a yeah. positive story, I think. Oh, that's
0: i love to hear
1: it. I do hear lots of stories of things going down with very quickly unfortunately as well. <laughs> Um, But, you know, there's been lots of other. One thing I would say is I often do really see the impact when I get the pleasure of working with groups to run out some training, say, and then having follow up sessions with them. So probably another success story actually was a group who I worked with from a different culture. So the first session we talked about some of the some of the questions that came up is Do emotions even have a role in the workplace? Why do we even need to care about how people feel? Or, you know, like that was a sort of conversation that was coming up. Like this is works about work. It's not about people and how they feel and just, you know, questioning things like really sort of basic, I suppose, as compared to, you know, other environments. And then by the end of running a few sessions and then having some ongoing sort of coaching circles over time, They were telling me stories about how they were just creating opportunities to connect with people for no other reason than just to build relationships and trust. And they were, like, working that into all of them, the whole group. So it was really lovely, I don't know, sort of like a momentum that got going when they they leaned into it together and explored the challenges together and realised, oh, we all have similar challenges. And it was just a small thing. So that wasn't what I was training them in, but they just all decided, you know what, the first thing we have to do is just have this connection with people and you know let's do deliberate things to create that connection and that was then making the difficult conversations less difficult because they were people were openly sharing more things and
0: it all just boils down to that you know to the marble or the bank account yeah you know when you build those relationships and build a trust everything kind of takes care of itself yeah
1: it often does and that's and I find that interesting that you say that because When people ask me what I do when I talk about helping leaders to have tricky conversations or feedback and coaching or career and growth conversations or whatever it is, really what's sitting underneath all of that is trust, psychological safety, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, you know, connection, clarity, like all of those things are actually underneath the, what looks like a training program on feedback and coaching. <laughs> it's actually, so sometimes I'm thinking, how do I get that across to people that it's not as simple as here's the training on this, it's actually really bringing in all that human stuff, you know, that sits underneath and that's really what it's about. So, and I think that's, you know, what I suppose I realized when I decided to focus more on this space is that I, I bring that sort of psych lens to that and, you know, some of the other psych stuff that I sort of play in, I bring all of that as well. So Yeah, I suppose it's that mix that I love of the culture and the talent and the capability and the leadership stuff, but then also what's sitting underneath all of that. That's right. I think it's just where, I think that's where the world's going in a way, isn't it? When it comes to expectations around leadership. and
0: 100%. The world's getting more and more complicated. We're becoming more and more complicated. It's so important to understand how to deal with other people
1: and how to build
0: relationships. It's so important how to interact with your fellow human being.
1: No, that's right. And especially now, that back to what you said earlier around empathy as well, you know, now like a lot more of my conversations are around the same things that we talked about, but when I'm getting people to think about other people's behavioural responses, saying, hey, how do you think they're going now? right now? What could be going on for them? Because, you know, you almost need that extra layer of empathy. Like we're losing it for each other at times <laughs> because we are depleted yep. and worn out and then we're overreading into other people's responses when sometimes it's not about you, it's not about anything other than what's going on in their home right now or,
0: right.
1: you know, there's, yeah. So that's the other thing I get quite passionate about, I suppose, is that empathy piece and, mm-hmm. you
0: know, really learning to...
1: Yeah, and just learning to sometimes just all you need to do is just sit with someone and just be with someone, yeah. and forget all the other things that are going on, and actually just connect with them in that moment, and then often that will actually take a care of take care of a lot of it. Yeah, so I get quite passionate about that stuff oh, as well. I mean, and
0: we could go on forever, but I think this is I know. <laughs> such a such an incredibly, you know important and you know with a lot of complexity but you've given a lot of incredible tools and tricks and tips and understanding of how we should go about these conversations and Mm. uh, just dealing with each other in a better way so i think it's been a really powerful episode (laughs) and i think a lot of people will get a lot of benefit from this and i think they you know really should take the time to listen to this episode um if people want to get in touch with you (laughs) you. oh thank you lisa thank you (laughs) if people want to get in touch with you how should they do that
1: um probably the best way is via my website which is just lisamalloy.com it's a bit of a funny spelling so (laughs) to let people know about that or just via linkedin actually i'm pretty active on linkedin so they can always reach me there that's got all my
0: contact details perfect well i'll make sure that i put your linkedin page as well as your website in the show notes so everybody can really um you know do some research find out more about lisa and if you want any, any help or any advice in this area she's the person to talk to
1: Yeah, look, and I'm always happy to just chat to people too. I'm pretty straightforward in the sense of if somebody asks me for something and I don't think it's the right solution or it's maybe they need to think about a few other things first, then I'm always happy to just chat and help them figure things out. I quite like talking to people, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Lisa, thank you again. Really appreciate it. And I always like to give my guests the last word. So I know you've given us so much, but is there anything else that pops in your mind? Just a little... Strategy for people to just keep on in their mind as they go about their day to day, even if it's the most simple oh. thing. Anything that comes. From <laughs> that? Mm. No,
1: I think just I think just regularly, broadly, I'd say just regularly tuning in to think about what is going on in your mind and and nice. not necessarily exploring why that's happening, but more thinking about how is that working for me? Like what what's impacting me right now, and given that, what do I need? What What should I do? (laughs) What will help me going forward? That's probably
0: the main thing. Sound Mm. advice. Sound advice. Well, Lisa, (laughs) thank you again, everybody out there. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And uh, feel free to check out all Lisa's work. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. So bye for now. I'll see you very, very soon for another episode of Playing With Perspective, the Suspended Animation Podcast.